First Thessalonians chapter 3. So we've been through two chapters. Those two chapters are almost like the founding of the church. Paul's going over some stuff. He's using metaphors of being a mom, of being a dad. It's the, the kind of the birth, the founding of the church at Thessalonica. Now, chapter three, it's a little bit of a gear shift, and it's now growing this church, establishing this church, strengthening this church, moving this church forward. So what Paul does is he grabs Timothy, writes this letter, and then sends Timothy with this letter. And that's what he's going to talk about, that process. And really you see four things that I think grow a Christian, grow a church, strengthen, establish a church. Number one, partnering. Number two, persecution. We need it. Number three, joy. And then prayer. That's the outline. It's brilliant. Let's jump in. First, Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker, I love that, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Step one, partnering. So Timothy is sent and he's called God's co-worker. That we work with God, God works with us, God works through us. And so they send him. Now, what prompted Paul and his crew to grab Timothy, to author this letter, and to send them off to Thessalonica? Because a lot of times as Christians, we have like worries. What do I do? How do I do this? Should I go to this city? Should I send this person? Right? We have all these questions about how to actually practically walk out our lives in a God-glorifying way. How do we know God's will? Right? Well, verse one just says, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left and we sent him. There was no, thus saith the Lord. There was no riding in the sky, send Timothy to Thessalonica. They didn't go out on their back porch and have their dog say, send Timothy, woof. There was no burning bush that wasn't being consumed. There was none of that, right? It was man, we had this thing in us and we just couldn't get over it, so we did something about it. I think God gave believers brains and we're supposed to use them. That we complicate things and make it ridiculous when it's actually a lot simpler to do God's will than we think. And believers sometimes, because we make things complicated and because we try to like almost force things to be something more than they are, we do silly things. So I have an example of it. A friend of mine, his name is Austin. I won't mention his last name, but Austin was part of this group that went down to Mexico. And they were in Mexico for about three months as part of a school of discipleship. And the leader of that school, his name is Jim Wright. You may know him. 
character. Jim Wright had a saying, when the bus is moving, be on it. What that meant was, I'm not going to come find you. The bus will leave and you'll be left. I don't care where it is, all right? So that's Jim Wright. So they're halfway down the Baja doing outreaches and the bus was moving and Austin and his buddy, they were not on it. And so they had to figure out how to get from where they were at all the way back up to almost the border, like hundreds of miles. So kind of a bummer, right? So they start, they're kind of bummed out and Austin's really bummed out and they're walking along. And the buddy starts telling Austin, who is getting kind of depressed and worried, he's like, hey man, this is an opportunity to trust God. Like, yeah, there were some mistakes made and maybe we made them, but don't we still believe, yeah, but don't we still believe that God is able to take what the enemy would use for evil and turn it for good? Don't we believe that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose? Don't you know that it's the triumph of our faith that produces patience and let patience have her perfect work that we might be entire, lacking nothing? And so Austin's just getting stoked. He's like, yeah, all right. And they happen to be walking across a bridge at the time and Austin's just on fire. So he reaches into his pocket and pulls out something, crumples it up and throws it off the bridge. His buddy's like, what did you just do? He goes, I had a couple hundred bucks in my pocket and we don't need it because we're trusting God. And his buddy was like, what? God gave you that money to help us. And he threw him in after the money. You're like, go get it. Sometimes we're like Austin, like, you, no, God may be prepared that 200 bucks in your pocket so that you could eat on the three days home instead of fasting, which they did, right? Like we do really silly things. We complicate it. God gave you a brain. You should use it. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he shall direct your path. That's a brilliant little text. Trust God. Okay. God, I don't know how I got here. Maybe I made mistakes. Whatever it is, I'm trusting you though. I'm acknowledging you. You're God, I'm not. You're in control, I am not. So please help me not to lean on my own limited understanding of this situation and direct me in the way that I'm supposed to go. And then you just move. Too many people get stuck in what I call the paralysis of analysis. Like, should I move here? Should I move there? Should I marry that guy? Should I not marry that guy? Should I marry that gal? Should I not marry that gal? Should I take this job? Should I not take that job? Well, just do something. Do you trust the Lord? Have you prayed about it? Have you got some counsel about it? Okay, don't be the rocking chair. A lot of commotion with no motion. Like, okay, I'm gonna make a decision and I'm going to move. The majority of the things that I have had to decide in my life have not come with a thus saith the Lord, have not come with a burning bush moment, have not come with any of those things. It's prayer, talking to people that I trust, getting counsel from them, getting a peace, and then moving, doing it. 
right? So if you don't know this, Edgewater met in an elementary school for 13 years and seven months called the Fruitdale Elementary School. We had to set it up and tear it down twice a week. Some of you did a lot of chair moving, and I am so thankful for you guys. And I'd be asked by people, why did you choose Fruitdale Elementary School? Did you hear from the Lord? Is Fruitdale in the Greek in the Bible? Is there some esoteric reason why you choose, chose Fruitdale Elementary School? Did you go by it, and was there a glow over it? You know what I told them? It was the closest school to my house. That's why I chose it. <laughs> I'd been going out to Roosh for 10 years. I'd worked out there for a little bit over a year, traveling out there five, six times a week. I wanted a church close to my house. So I choose, chose Fruitdale Elementary School. And for 13 years and seven months, what a blessing that school was to us. What a blessing Three Rivers School District was to us, right? I had nothing magical about it, just, man, this is a close school. I wonder if it'd work. And it did. Sometimes that's exactly how God guides. There's this great story about John the Baptist. It's John chapter three. And I was studying it one time. It was like John was baptized in this place called Aeon or Salem. And you can look up those words and Salem means peace. And I'm like, okay, John the Baptist is baptized in this place. Why do you choose this place to baptize? And so I started looking up the Greek words and the word means peace. And maybe he had a peace in his heart. Well, guess what? I just turned the page and the next verse said this. He was baptizing there because there was a lot of water. Okay, if you're a baptizer, what do you need? A lot of water. So John's like, hey, this is a great spot to be a baptizer. I'm gonna meet right here because there's a lot of water there. Like God sometimes guides in that way. Just practical, practical. I don't think God's trying to hide his will from us. I don't think God's trying to confuse us or test us in esoteric ways. I don't think that's the God of the Bible. It's, I do Proverbs 3, and then I move forward. And I'm moving forward saying, God, either confirm this or close the door. And God will close doors. And you can ask, hey, God, please confirm this. Like my favorite story of this is 1 Samuel 14. A great story to read to your kids. It's David's best friend, Jonathan, son of the king. And he's there and there's this battle going on. And it's just, they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And Jonathan and his armor bearer look up on this hill and there is a garrison of the Philistines up there. And he's like, to his armor bearer, he goes, you know what? God can save with a few people or with a lot of people. Like it doesn't matter to God, one or a thousand. He said, what if God was to use us to take out that whole garrison? And the armor bearer said, whatever's in your heart, I'm on board. So Jonathan said, let's head over there. And when they see us, if they say to us, come up here, we'll teach you a lesson, then we know God has given us a sign and we're going to take them out. But if they say, wait down there, we're going to come get you, God it hasn't done it, we're getting out of Dodge, right? So they over, go over there. And the Philistines looked at him and said, come up here, we'll teach you a lesson. And Jonathan looked at his armor bearer and said, oh yeah, let the fun begin. And they went up there and they sparked a massive revival in Israel. But they put a condition on it. Got to close the door or confirm it to us, but we're going to move on this right now because we trust you and we've acknowledged you 
and we're moving out. We're using our brains. I love that, okay? So partner. The Bible's about partnering. So Tim is this partner. He's sent. He's a co-worker. But who do you think the church at Thessalonica wanted? They got Timothy. Who'd they really want? Paul, right? Paul is amazing. You read the Bible, there's hardly anyone in the Bible like Paul. Love Jesus, his pursuit of Jesus. You might be pursuing Jesus, but Paul pursued Jesus like very few ever have. You might be a great evangelist. Paul was a phenomenal evangelist. You might be a great missionary. Paul was out of this world, fantastic missionary. You might be a great writer. Paul wrote the Bible, okay? And if you think, well, I'm actually kind of like Paul. Okay, here's your test. Take your sweat rag, your old hanky. Lay it on a sick person and see if they get well. If they do, you can possibly be in the same category as Paul, right? So Paul just out of this world good. But they got Timothy instead. It's hard to play second fiddle. Do you know that? It is. I remember I took over this Bible study. There was this guy who was doing a Bible study at Vintage Suites. Great guy. He wanted to break. One Saturday, he called me up. Hey, can you fill in? I was just working as an engineer there. I wasn't pastoring anything. Hey, can you fill in for one Saturday for me? I said, sure, no problem. So I went down there. I filled in. The next Sunday, that next day, he had a stroke. Yeah, so everything changed. So I started doing that study. Every time I would go in there on Saturday for two and a half years, I'd go in there, I'd sit down. There was an old guy. He'd be there waiting. He'd look at me. He'd say, hey, kid, when's the old guy coming back? I said, well, I don't know. You know, I'm here today. And then he would do this. And it took him forever. And he'd walk out the door. Okay, thank you. All right. When's the old guy coming back? I'm out of here. It's hard playing second fiddle. We want to be Paul, but the truth is, there's only one Paul. But there's a time in my life where I just went through First and Second Timothy. And what I saw was this. I'm never going to be Paul, but I can be Timothy. I can be Timothy. You want a great discipline. Just read those two pastoral epistles and underline the things that Paul asked Timothy to do. And what you see is this. I can do that. Hey, Timothy, keep the faith. Hey, I can do that. Hey, Timothy, pray. I can do that. Hey, Timothy, take the stuff that I've taught you and just teach other people. You don't have to invent your own theology. You don't have to write your own messages. Take exactly what I did and parrot it. Hey, I can do that. Hey, study the Bible. I can do that. Hey, be patient. I can do that. Hey, be a servant. I can do that. No one's gonna be a Paul. But I think all of us can be a co-worker with God like Timothy. And for church to grow, for churches to be established, there has to be a bunch of Timothys that are just, I'm a co-worker with God. And I can keep the faith and I can pray and I can just share the things God has shared with me from other people. I can study, I can be patient, I can be a servant. And that's how a church grows strong. We need partners, number one. Number two, persecution. Verse three. 
that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. You know what you're destined for as a, as a Christian? Afflictions. <laughs> for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Church, it needs persecution. Paul says, tough times are coming, and when I was with you, I kept warning you about that, that part of your destiny as a Christian in this culture is you are going to suffer persecution. I prepared you. I think cover to cover, the Bible prepares a believer in God that tough times are coming. It's cover to cover. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome. I like to be prepared. I like it to be on a plane flying somewhere and have the pilot come on and say, hey, by the way, I've been looking out on radar and I see out in about 10 minutes, we're gonna hit a thundercloud. It's gonna cause some turbulence. Don't worry, we'll go right through. It'll be no problem. I like that a lot better than when I'm eating my meal and then all of a sudden you hit it and the meal goes all over you. I'd much rather be prepared. I like it when the dentist says, hey, I, I'm gonna poke you and it's gonna hurt a little bit right now. I like that a lot better than when just all of a sudden, ah! You're like, oh, no, no, I like to be prepared. Right here. Paul said, I prepared you. I think everyone should put the first day of their calendar, it should be, I have an appointment with tribulation this month. And if it doesn't happen, be super thankful. Okay, good. Put it for the next month because eventually it is going to come. The part of my job, like Paul's was, part of my job as a pastor is to tell you tough times are coming. Life is not easy. Life is not fair, but hard isn't bad. Do you know that? Hard's not bad. I think if you're prepared correctly for tribulation, you understand the world we're in, you understand the clash of kingdoms, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. When you understand all of that and the reality of the way things are, you actually are a much more joyful person. What do you mean? I'll give you an analogy that C.S. Lewis gave. He said, imagine two people, and they're both going to the same building. One person is told that building is a jail. The other person is told that building is a five-star resort. Who will have more joy about the building? The person who thinks it's a jail, because they're going to go in there and be like, I've got a bed in my room. There's a bed in my room. How awesome. I have my own shower. Thank you, Jesus. I have my own shower, Right? There's meals. Ah, oh, they cook. There's no guard at the door. You can actually go outside and go in the grass. Can you believe this? This is awesome. But the person that believes it's a five-star resort, what are they gonna say? Man, that bed was terrible. It was so hard and lumpy. Ah, breakfast was horrible. It was just oatmeal. I can't believe oatmeal. The grass outside is dry and it's, it's a fescue. I like rye grass, right? They're gonna complain. What the Bible says to you and me 
since Genesis 3 is, this world is a prison. And you and I are pilgrims just passing through it. We're supposed to be like Abraham, who had this hope and this trust. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He knew, this is not my home. This is prison until I go home. And because of that, you can enjoy so much more. You're not putting too high of expectations on things because you realize it's fallen, it's broken. There'll be tribulation, there'll be persecution, but I will find great joy in the midst of it. I'm moving forward through mountains and valleys, through joy and through sorrow, and one day I'll be home. That's what the Bible prepares us for. And when you understand that, with that perspective, man, it's joy. I can have joy, no problem. And this is the one thing he asked Timothy to find out about. Look at verse five. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Tough times are coming. Tribulation hit them. Paul's worry was, uh uh-oh, how's their faith? Timothy, when you get there, ask them about their faith. We ask people a lot of questions, don't we? Hey, how's your family? How's business? How's your health? How are your kids doing? How's your cat doing? How's your dog doing? How's your motorcycle? How's your car? But do we ever ask people, how's your faith? Especially during times of tribulation, because that's when your faith gets tested. We don't ask that very often. But what really matters? My cat? My dog? It's my faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus says, Matthew 18, verse 8, he says, when I return, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? The one thing Jesus is going to look for when he gets back, the one thing, not my business or not how great a church building looks, he's going to ask one thing, is there faith here? That's what matters. I think it's a great question to ask. It's a great question for me to ask myself. Now, how's your faith? Am I trusting Jesus more today than I did yesterday or last month or last year, especially when difficult times, when the tempter can come and say, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about you. How's your faith? Church needs partners like Timothy church needs persecution because it purifies us. It makes us, as Job would say, come forth like gold. And a church, number three, needs joy. Verse six, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, We have been comforted about you through our faith, for now we live. If you are steadfast in the Lord, 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. How good is that? Your joy. I think tough times are often where your greatest joys are found. I think that when you are serving, partnering well like Timothy, maybe even running into affliction, which is what Timothy did, a church that was being afflicted, you're in the right place in your right capacity, even with difficult times, with the right kind of people, it is joyful, joyful, joyful. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's joyful. Doesn't mean it's easy, but heart's not bad. But there's a blessing in it. A blessing. I found it in smaller ways. I remember back a couple years ago, I agreed to teach this, this class over at SOU just for one night with a group called Soma over there. And it was like six months out, right? Oh yeah, no problem, do that in six months. And then the six months disappeared. And I'm like, oh no, I was really busy, had a lot of stuff going on. I was going to school up at Western and it just felt like, oh my goodness, I do not want to do this. I started to dread it. I mean, partially, I don't like to go to Ashland, so that was just part of it, like, oh, I don't want to go to Ashland, right? So finally it came, I'm like, all right, yeah, all right. Charity, my wife, decided to go with me. We jump in our Suburban, we drive over there. And I told Charity as we're driving into Ashland, we took the first exit, I said, look and see if there's another Suburban in the entire city of Ashland. We did not see one other Suburban, right? A thousand Subarus, no Suburbans. We're in Grants Pass, most of us have like two Suburbans. You take the white one, I'll take the black one, right? So just different. Then we get to this, this school place and everybody's got beards, you know, they're all like these bearded people, even the ladies have beards. I'm like, man, I can't even grow a beard. I'm like, I feel kind of like, ah. <laughs> all right, we get there and this couple came right up to me and goes, we have been wanting to meet you. I was like, really, why? They're like, a couple years ago, someone gave us your marriage series in the book of Ephesians, and it saved our marriage. And we just wanted to thank you. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even know that. That's really awesome. And then a, this older couple came over to me. We're like, hey, we, are, we live up in Green Springs, and we've been podcasting you, and we just love what you're doing to, at Edgewater. That happened like, it was supposed to be just kids, and it happened like five times. I remember I left that time so blessed, joy squared. Because when you're in the right place, with the right kind of people, no matter how hard something is or how difficult it is, there can be incredible fullness of joy, just full joy, right? So here's what Paul asked them. This is, this is really funny to me. It's now prayer as we pray most earnestly for you night and day that we may see your face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with the saints. The final ingredient is prayer. You need partners, you need persecution, you need joy, you need prayer. Church needs 
Paul asks for a couple things. Number one, he says this, I wanna come to fill up your lack. How bold is that? Hey, I've been looking at you guys. You got some giant holes in your theology. You got some giant holes in your life. An 18-wheeler could go through it. So I'm there to fill up your lack. (laughs) If someone said that to you, how would you respond? I've been watching your life. I've been watching your marriage. I've been watching you as a dad. And you got some holes, bro. How would you respond? I think there are four responses that I've seen. Number one response is this. I call it the pity party. When you say to somebody, hey man, I think God's put something on my heart for you. I've been noticing something. I just want to share it with you. They're like, yeah, well, you know, I'm just a failure. I can't do anything right. Oh, woe is me. It's a pity party response. Now, you know what I do with people like that? I agree with them. Yeah, that's what you are. And what you find is nine out of 10 times, they didn't defend themselves because it's a ploy. It's a ploy not to deal with what you're actually seeing. Second response is, well, I'm just being, you're persecuting me, right? I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake, which which we live in America. We're not persecuted. Someone says an angry tweet or, you know, does something on Instagram. I mean, that's not persecution. In Afghanistan, Christians are getting their heads cut off. That's persecution, okay? So if you live in America, maybe it's coming for us, you know, quite possibly, but it isn't here yet. So I just think, oh, goodness sakes, you're not persecuted. Third one is, um, it's Matthew 7 where Jesus says, if you see a speck in somebody's eye, take out the log in your own eye first. It's that one where people are like, oh yeah, you saw a speck in my eye? Well, I'm surprised you could see the speck in my eye with the log in your head, right? Whereas you try to discredit somebody because you think if you can discredit them, you don't have to listen to what they have to say. There's a fourth way, and this is one that I'm trying to do myself. It's listen carefully, ponder what they say, and pray and ask God, is it true? All right, thank you for sharing that with me. Doesn't mean it's the gospel truth, doesn't mean they're right on, but I'm going to listen carefully to what they have to say. And I'm gonna pray and say, God, if this is true, confirm it because I know I have blind spots. One of the prayers that I try to pray regularly is Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Sometimes the heart is so deceitful, you can't even see the way it's going. So you're praying, God, if there is a tendency in me right now that's leading me astray, search it out, show it to me, and lead me on the path everlasting. Because I know that I can have blind spots. And I need somebody from the outside, an outside view saying, Look out, look out. I know I have blind spots. Here's how I know. Because three years ago when I'm up here teaching at Fruitdale Elementary School, I thought I was killing it. Man, in my marriage, with my kids, as a dad, as a pastor, as a citizen of Grants Pass, I'm killing it. But today I look back on Matt Heverly three years ago and I think, moron, what was wrong with that dude, right? So I know three years from now, I'm gonna look at, back at Matt Heverly today and be like, moron, what was he thinking? I know that. So I better understand and have a humility to say, I want to listen well, because the stakes are high. The stakes are real high. I'll give you a real example. 
So maybe some of you remember a guy named Andy Green. He was a pastor, planted a church in Ashland called Ashland Christian Fellowship. I heard one message by Andy Green and that's it. This is the message I heard. He had left the church, not like done with church for the day, walking out to his car and a man met him in the parking lot. And this man said to Andy, God has sent me to give you a message that if you do not repent in the way that you are living your life right now, you're gonna lose your family, you're gonna lose this church, and you're gonna lose your faith. And Andy Green in the sermon said, I looked at that man and said, you better check which side you're on because Satan tells me that every single day. And I was like, woo, wow, what a great response. The only problem was this. One year later, Andy Green ran off with the church secretary. It was a warning because the stakes are high. We need to be a people that are willing to listen to what God's spirit is speaking to the congregation. Doesn't mean they're speaking the gospel truth. People can get their wires crossed. People can do that. So we pray for confirm because maybe that's how God searches the heart sometimes is he uses a person to say, Matt, I've been seeing this in you. And it's unhealthy. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the boldness to come and tell me that. I will pray about it and ask for confirmation about it because the stakes are high. So Paul says, I'm coming to fill your lacks and they have no problem with that. Number two, he prays. I'm coming so that you, and I love this, the Lord, verse 12, make you increase and abound in love. The word love there is the word agape. Let me ask you, believer, can you agape on your own? Now, there's other words for love. Eros, which is physical love. You can eros on your own. There's storge, which is family love. You can do that on your own. There's phileo, which is brotherly love. You can do that on your own. Can you agape on your own? Well, if you think you can, there's actually a definition of agape in 1 Corinthians 13. 15 qualities of what agape looks like, right? The first one is this. Agape gives without wanting anything in return. Do you give like that? Or you want nothing back? Husbands, you get off early from work and you go home and you clean the entire house. You make the toilet shine. You take care of all the laundry. You fold it all up. You change all the sheets on the bed. You remake them. And when your wife comes home, she just screams for joy and says, I'm going shopping. Are you like, yeah, that's what I wanted? Because that's agape. You want nothing in return, period. Right? That's just one. Second one is this. It's unchanging. Nothing that person can do to you will change your love. It's Hosea when Gomer, his wife, cheats on him repeatedly. Where they have a son and Hosea names that son, not my child. Right? You know what that means. Yeah, he's not my son. I know that. Right? It still is unchanging. Number three, bears all things. Bears it all. She throws your cell phone at your head. It cracks and breaks. You say, thank you. I get a new iPhone 13. I appreciate that. She sells your motorcycle on Craigslist. Thank you. You know, I was going to kill myself on that. I appreciate it. She wrecks your Volkswagen bus. That's okay. I love you still, right? That's just three. Anyone doing those three well? No way. 
The reason why, Paul prays, the Lord make you increase and abound in agape is because that's the only way agape works. It cannot happen any other way. And this is theologically important because if you can agape without God, you don't need him. You could write a song. Love is all we need. You don't need God. You just need love. You can do it on your own. No way. The Bible says that quality of love is a supernatural fruit of his spirit working in you. One of my consistent prayers is I will wake up in the morning and I will say, Jesus, today, I want to be the husband that I'm supposed to be, the dad that I should be, the pastor you want me to be, the citizen of Grant's past that I desire to be, the ambassador of your kingdom that I so want, and I know I cannot do that without your spirit So today, fill me with your spirit and empower me to be that husband, that father, that citizen, that pastor. It's acknowledging him. I can't do it without him. I need him. Lord, increase and abound me in your love. And then lastly, he prays for hope. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. If you know 1 Thessalonians, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, all end with the same thing, the return of Jesus Christ. Paul talks a bit, return of Jesus Christ. Talks a bit, return of Jesus Christ. Talks a bit, return of Jesus Christ. Talks a bit, return of Jesus Christ because that's our hope. Well, Matt, the return of Jesus isn't hopeful for me. It's scary for me. I'm worried. I'm worried. What if I get left behind? I read those books. I saw the movie. What if I'm left behind? Okay. Simple question. Why does God love you? Is it because you're good enough and you're smart enough? And gosh darn it, people just like you? No. Notice this little phrase in 13a. He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Who makes you blameless and holy? You, your effort, how great you are? He makes you blameless and holy. Oh, that we would get this pounded into our head. How God sees you. Because of your simple faith in Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. You're blameless and holy. God sees you like a quarterback that hits 100% of his throws. Like a pitcher that throws 27 strikeouts in a row. Like a batter that always hits 1,000. That's how God sees you. Blameless and holy. I think we undersell what Christianity has actually done. You are blameless and holy. That's what you are. You can either believe that or reject it. But when you accept Jesus as your king and as your savior, you become in the Father's sight blameless and holy. 
That's what happens to you, right? I mean, think about, a think about just this for a second. If God, the creator of the universe, sustainer of everything, spoke everything into motion, spun the galaxies out with just a voice, if God died, and he did, that hist nothing bigger in history, what would the ramifications of that act be? They'd have to be huge, right? Massive, incredible, unbelievable. And they are. You're holy and blameless. You're a QB that hits all of his throws. You're a pitcher that always throws perfect games. You're a batter that hits a thousand. That's how God sees you. It's huge. It's radical. That's why Jesus over and over was like, guys, where's your faith, man? Don't you know the radical nature of what's taking place right now in your midst that the kingdom is here right? Oh, you have little faith. If you could just comprehend what you have become in the sight of the Father, it would blow your mind. That's our hope. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's what my hope is. If that's your hope, you will not be left behind. Because he makes you blameless and holy, period. So Jesus today, may we as a church be being strengthened. May we be co-workers with you in the gospel. May we be expecting persecution because we realize there is a clash of kingdoms. There is a real enemy, a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. So we need to be sober and we need to be vigilant. Be ready. May we find joy in partnering with you because of being in the right place with the right people. Joy just explodes. And may we be prayerful. May we be a prayerful hopeful people because you are our king and you have declared that you will establish us as blameless and holy. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.